Welcome to episode 36 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode will deal primarily with the Jewish history of Istanbul. And some of you may reasonably ask, why not the Jewish history of Turkey? And the answer to that is both simple and complicated, in that Turkey as a concept didn't really exist until the 1920s, whereas the city of Istanbul, under a variety of names, has existed for thousands of years and was an important center of Jewish life for much of its history. Before going any further, I want to acknowledge the very long delay between the last episode and this one, and apologize for it in a sense, because the last episode dealt with the war in Ukraine. And I have been emotionally and intellectually caught up in that conflict. I've done a lot of public speaking on it. And my temptation was to keep doing podcast episodes on that conflict. But I think you've heard enough, at least from me on that subject. So I wanted to sort of start over with our history of various Jewish communities around the world. Now, Istanbul has been known primarily by three different names under different empires. And we're going to talk about those because more than in most places, understanding the history of Istanbul is key to understanding the history of its Jewish community or its Jewish communities, if you will. The earliest settlements on the Asian side of Istanbul go back to at least 5,000 years before the Christian era. And on the European side, they go back to at least 1,000 years before the Christian era. We're going to look at the European side for the moment and say that in the early days, it was referred to by Pliny the Elder as Ligos, And that name existed until 660 before the Common Era, when Greek settlers established Byzantium on the European side of the Bosphorus. They built an Acropolis in roughly the site of what is today the Topkapi Palace, and they really jacked up the city's economy and its role in European history. The city experienced a brief period of Persian rule at the beginning of the 5th century BCE, but the Greeks recaptured it during the Greco-Persian Wars. Byzantium then continued as part of the Athenian League and its successor before gaining independence in 365 BCE. Long allied with the Romans, Byzantium officially became part of the Roman Empire in the year 73 of the Common Era. Byzantium's decision to side with one Roman emperor against another cost it dearly, and by the time it surrendered at the end of 195 in the Common Era, two years of siege had left the city destroyed. Five years later, the emperor began to rebuild Byzantium, and the city regained, and by some accounts even exceeded, its previous prosperity. So when and why did Byzantium stop being called that and start being called Constantinople? Well, the answer lies with Constantine the Great, who officially became the emperor of the whole of the Roman Empire in 324 of the Common Era. Two months later, he laid out plans for a new Christian city to replace Byzantium. As the eastern capital of the Roman Empire, the city was named Nova Roma, New Rome. 
Constantinople, which is a name that persisted into twentieth century in some usages, was proclaimed capital of the entire Roman Empire, which was later permanently divided between the two th- sons of Theodosius I when that emperor died in 395, at which point Constantinople became the capital of the Eastern Roman, also known as the Byzantine Empire. The establishment of Constantinople was one of Constantine the Great's most lasting accomplishments. Shifting Roman power eastward as the city became a center of Greek culture and Orthodox Christianity, Numerous churches were built across the city, including the Hagia Sophia, which was built during the reign of Justinian the Great and remained the world's largest cathedral for a thousand years until the great mosque of Sevilla in Spain was converted to a cathedral more than a thousand years later. And in one of those great historic ironies, the conversion of the great mosque of Sevilla into a cathedral occurred at roughly the same time as the conversion of the Hagia Sophia Cathedral into a mosque. Now, some of you may wonder why I'm saying Hagia Sophia instead of Hagia Sophia. And the answer to that is simple. It's a result of an unfortunate English rendering or transliteration of the Greek word Aia, which is saint. And Aia Sophia means Saint Sophia. And nobody actually pronounces it Hagia, but it only looks like it's pronounced that way. Even today, Istanbul is an amazing city, one of a kind, 24-7, always something going on, and one of the few great cities in the world to span two continents. Its location ensured that its existence would stand the test of time for many centuries. Its walls and its seafront protected Europe against invaders from the east and against the advance of Islam. During most of the Middle Ages, Constantinople was the largest and wealthiest city on the European continent, and at many points in time, the largest city in the world. Constantinople is generally considered to be the center and the cradle of Orthodox Christian civilization. And if you'll permit me one of my little linguistic digressions, Constantinople was and still is in many Slavic languages, referred to for centuries as Tsarigrad, the city of the emperor, or the city of the czar, or with a different spelling and a slightly different Western language, the city of the Kaiser. And if you think about it for just a second, you'll realize that czar is spelled in that unusual way, C-Z-A-R, because it really comes from the same root as Caesar and the same root as Kaiser, all of which mean emperor. And In the eyes of the Slavic world, including Russians, Bulgarians, Serbs, etc., this was the emperor's city, and this was, in fact, the capital of the world. Constantinople began to decline in the 11th century, and the Fourth Crusade, which was diverted from its original purpose in 1204, saw the Latin Catholics, under the spiritual leadership of the Pope, sacking and pillaging the capital of Orthodox Christianity. They established the Latin Empire in place of the Orthodox Byzantine Empire, and the Hagia Sophia was converted to a Catholic church in that very year, 1204. The Byzantine Empire was restored, although much weakened, in 1261. Constantinople's churches, defenses, and basic services 
were in disrepair and its population had declined to 100,000 from more than half a million during the 8th century. After the reconquest of 1261, some of the city's monuments were restored and the Hagia Sophia notably was totally restored to its former greatness. By the mid-14th century, the Ottoman Turks were a rising power not only in Anatolia, but also in Thrace on the European side of the Bosphorus. They weren't anywhere near Constantinople yet, but by 1453, after a long siege, the Roman emperor, the last Byzantine emperor, was killed and Sultan Mehmet II, also known as Mehmet Fatih, which means the conqueror, captured Constantinople and declared it to be the new capital of the Ottoman Empire. Now, it wasn't the first capital or even the second capital of the Ottoman Empire. It was third or fourth. And the other capitals all had significant Jewish communities as well. But this Jewish community existed long before Mehmet declared himself as the new Kaiser Irum, the Ottoman Turkish equivalent of the Caesar of Rome. And the Ottoman state was reorganized into an empire, incorporating a fair amount of, surprisingly, Byzantine institutions and legal frameworks. It became an interesting hybrid, so much so that the old Roman fixation on law and order translated into the Turkish name for Suleiman the Magnificent, which was Suleiman Kanuni, which means Suleiman the Lawgiver. Mehmet the Conqueror immediately set out to revitalize the city, which he understood meant also repopulating it. So he invited people from all over Europe to his capital, creating a cosmopolitan society that lasted through much of the Ottoman period. Revitalizing Istanbul also required a massive program of rebuilding of everything from roads to aqueducts to churches, mosques, etc., etc., there was a new palace built to rival, if not overshadow, the old one, a new covered market which still stands as the Grand Bazaar. And Mehmet really succeeded in turning the ramshackle old town into something that looked like an imperial capital. The Ottoman dynasty claimed the status of caliphate in the year 1517, with Constantinople, now Istanbul, remaining the capital of this last caliphate for four centuries. Suleiman the Magnificent, who reigned from 1520 to 1566, oversaw a huge amount of artistic, architectural, and economic achievement. His chief architect, who was an Armenian named Sinan, designed several iconic buildings in the city, which are still major tourist draws. And by the end of the 1700s, the population of Constantinople far exceeded half a million. After a great deal of political and social turmoil in the 19th century, the Ottomans joined World War I on the losing side, and they were ultimately defeated. And Ottoman power came sort of stumbling to a halt. Following a Turkish war of independence from 1919 to 1922, the Grand National Assembly of Turkey in Ankara, which became the new capital, abolished the Sultanate on the 1st of November 1922, and the last Ottoman Sultan, Mehmet VI, was declared persona non grata and left on board a British warship on November 17th of 1922, went into exile and died in Italy in 1926. 
the occupation of, of Constantinople, now Istanbul, ended with the departure of the last forces of the Allies in late 1923. Turkish forces of the Ankara government entered the city with ceremony on October 6, 1923, and on October 29th of the same year, the Grand National Assembly of Turkey declared the establishment of the Turkish Republic with Ankara as its capital and Ataturk as the first president. Now, it's hard to overstate the drama and the tumult of all the political events that took place in Turkey, and particularly in Istanbul, during the years between 1910 and 1930. Uh, the country essentially transformed itself completely, changed capitals, changed systems of government, established a secular republic, and also changed patterns which had existed since early Ottoman days and even pre-Ottoman days of friendly coexistence among a lot of different minorities, particularly in Istanbul. There were Greeks, there were Armenians, there were Venetians, there were French, there were Jews. And on the one hand, each of these groups was sort of a rival of the other, but also they all contributed to the incredibly exciting and colorful mosaic that was daily life in Istanbul. So what about the Jews of the city that was once known as Byzantium and then Constantinople and finally Istanbul today? Well, they go back a very long time. Even in the pre-Christian era, there were Greek-speaking Jews throughout Asia Minor, including the city of Byzantium. As that city became more and more integrated into the Roman Empire, it was relevant that the emperor Caracalla, in the year 212 of the Common Era, bestowed citizenship on all residents of the Roman Empire, including the Jews. This granted Jews legal equality on the same level as all other citizens and formed the foundation of their legal status in Byzantium following the founding of Constantinople in the year 330. But under the emperor Theodosius and his famous Theodosian Code, the position of Jews started to decline. In 404, they were excluded from certain government posts. In 418, they were banned from the civil service and from all military positions. In 425, they were excluded from all remaining public offices, both civilian and military, a prohibition which the great Justinian reiterated. These restrictions, however, inevitably compromised the theological arguments for restricting the Jewish religion. Although they empowered the Christian citizens of the empire at the expense of its Jews, all laws dealing with the Jews implicitly recognized the continued existence and legality of the Jewish religion. Justinian's legal code in the 6th century weakened the position of Jews even further. And between 565 and 1204, there were periods of greater and lesser tolerance. There were periods of Jewish revolts. There were periods of semi-pogroms. But in fact, the so-called persecutions of Jews during the Byzantine period were really limited to three. One was during the reign of Leo III. One was in the late 9th century under Basil I. And the last was in the late 10th century under John Tzimiski. After him, there were no recorded legal persecutions of the Jews for nearly 250 years. 
In fact, there's a very famous book about Byzantine Jewry that states that Constantinople during the Byzantine Empire was the center of Jewish, Samaritan, and Karaite scholarship. And one of the greatest authors of the poems that enrich the high holiday liturgy for most Jews came from Constantinople, and a number of other great scholars and authors called Constantinople home. In the 12th century, there were about 2,500 Jews in Constantinople and others throughout the Byzantine rule. During the Latin occupation from 1204 to 1261, life for Jews became much more difficult. A lot of legal persecutions were undertaken. And because of various things going on in the Western or Roman Catholic Church, there was a new drive to convert all Jews, which was distinctly un-Byzantine. During the final years of the Byzantine Empire, from 1261 to 1453, uh, the position of Jews really seemed to be more concerned with Venetians who had come to reside in the empire in large numbers than with Jews themselves or with the Roman Catholic Church. And it's now that things start to get really complicated. Before the Ottoman conquest in 1453, there were already large functioning Karaite and Romaniot communities in Istanbul. Until 1688, the Romaniot community formed the majority of Jews in the city, 56% of all Jews in 1608 and 57% in 1623. There were also Ashkenazic Jews who came largely as a result of expulsions from parts of Northern and Central Europe, such as the expulsion by the Duke of Bavaria in the 1460s, where, which resulted in the arrival of many German and Hungarian Jews. The fabric of Ottoman Jewish life changed with waves of immigration of Ashkenazi, Sephardi, and Italian Jews, who all built separate and autonomous congregations. In the 16th and 17th centuries, a significant number of congregations named Signora were funded by the gracious financial support of a Portuguese Jewess who was very well known. And in spite of the very well-known arrival of multitudes of Jews from Spain and Portugal, Ashkenazic Jews also continued to settle in Istanbul from the 15th century right through the 20th century. Although they only constituted 6% of all the Jews in the city in 1608 and were very slow to assimilate among their Sephardi cousins. But by far the most dramatic moment in the history of the Jews of Istanbul came in 1492 with the promulgation of the Alhambra Decree, expelling all Jews from Spain and ultimately, several years later, also all Jews from Portugal. The sultan at the time, whose name was Bayezid, which means thunderbolt, had a grand vizier who quickly equipped boats with fine clothes and fine foods and sent them to Spanish ports to encourage Spanish Jews to settle in the Sultan's realm. Bayezid himself is said to have remarked, what a fool this Spanish king must be to expel the very people who made him wealthy and successful. And indeed, for a very long time, Ottomans showed incredible tolerance towards Jews, and they ended up in many prominent positions. By the year 1800, Ottoman Jews made up 5% of the population of Istanbul, 
but 27% of all licensed physicians in Istanbul. Later, that percentage would rise even to 60%. In the 1700s, using the printing press, books were often published both in Spanish and Ladino, which was the language that Spanish and Portuguese-speaking Jews created that is roughly their version of Yiddish, and it can be written either in the Hebrew alphabet or in the Latin alphabet. Despite the general tolerance between Jews and Turks, the interactions with the Christian community were usually not so good, and there were very significant minorities in Istanbul of Armenians, Greeks, Venetians, and French. In 1821, for example, following the death of the Greek patriarch, which is roughly the equivalent of the Pope of the Orthodox world, whose residence and primary seminary have always been in Constantinople. There were three Jewish physicians who attended the Greek patriarch, and he died. So these three doctors were lynched, and in subsequent rioting by the Greek population, somewhere like 5,000 Jews were killed or injured. So life was not completely a bowl of cherries for the Jews in Istanbul. By great good luck, there are currently on Netflix two Turkish TV series related to Jewish life in Istanbul that are definitely worth seeing and which I recommend highly. The first of these is called The Club, and it explains why during the course of the 1950s, in roughly a decade, the population of Ladino-speaking Jews in Istanbul declined from 100,000 to 10,000. There were political, economic, and social reasons for this, but it's well worth watching, and it's an unflinching look by Turks at their own history and not at one of the brightest moments in their history. There's another TV series called The Para Palace, which is the name of a very famous hotel in Para, which was where Jews and Christians primarily lived, and where the office of the chief rabbi of the Ottoman Empire and now of Turkey has always been. He is called the Hacham Bashi, the chief Hacham, the chief wise man. And Turkish Jews, and this again gets confusing because what does Turkish mean? Well, at one point, Turkish Jews came from Aleppo in Syria. They came from what is now Israel They came from the island of Rhodes. They came from Thessaloniki in northern Greece. They came from lots of places that are not now part of Turkey. But that greater community of Turkish Jews who spoke Ladino and who ate Turkish Jewish foods and had a Turkish Jewish rite is still an important Jewish community in the world, although most of it now resides in Israel and a few possibly unexpected cities in the United States, like Seattle and Rochester, New York. In any case, I encourage you to watch these TV series to get a better idea of the history of Jewish life in Istanbul. And if you haven't already visited this wonderful, magical city, I heartily encourage you to do so. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.